Chapter Fourteen of Some American Storytellers by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fourteen, Ambrose Bierce. In the preface to the fourth volume of his collected works, the volume containing under the title of Shapes of Clay the major portion of purely personal satiric verse, Mr. Ambrose Bierce emphatically expresses his belief in the right of any author to have his fugitive work in newspapers and periodicals put into a more permanent form during his lifetime if he can no one is likely to dispute mr bierce's contention but it is often a grave question how far it is wise for the individual to exercise his inalienable rights and in the case of authors the question comes down to this how far is it to their own best interests to dilute their finer and more enduring work with that which is mediocre and ephemeral for it is unfortunately true that no author is measured by his highlights alone but by the resultant impression of blended light and shade and there is many a writer among the recognized classics who to-day would take a higher rank had a kindly and discriminating fate assigned three-quarters of his life-work to a merciful oblivion to the student of american letters however the comprehensive edition of ambrose bierce's writings recently issued in ten portly and well-made volumes cannot fail to be welcome it places at once within convenient reach a great mass of material which good bad or indifferent as the case may be all helps to throw suggestive sidelights upon the author his methods and his outlook upon life it forces the reader who perchance has hitherto known mr beer solely as a master of the short story to realize that this part of his work has been throughout a long and busy life a sort of side issue and that the great measure of his activities has been expended upon social and political satire and similarly those who have known him best as the fluent producer of stinging satiric verse suddenly recognize how versatile and many-sided are his literary gifts the ten volumes are divided as follows three volumes of prose fiction two volumes of satiric verse two volumes of literary and miscellaneous essays and three volumes consisting mainly of satiric prose including a greatly amplified edition of that curiously caustic piece of irony the cynic's word-book now for the first time published under the title of mr bierce's own choosing the devil's dictionary it seems therefore most convenient to consider mr bierce the man of letters under three separate aspects the critic the satirist and the master of the short story regarding literary criticism mr bierce says quite frankly the saddest thing about the trade of writing is that the writer can never know nor hope to know if he is a good workman in literary criticism there are no criteria no accepted standards of excellence by which to test the work now there is just enough truth in this attitude of mind to make it a rather dangerous one if there were literally no accepted standards in any of the arts no principles to which a certain influential majority of critical minds had given their adhesion then literature and all the arts would be in a state of perennial anarchy but of course any writer who believes in his heart that there are no criteria will necessarily remain in lifelong ignorance regarding his own worth for it is only through learning how to criticize others sanely and justly that one acquires even the rudiments of self-criticism and incidentally it may be observed that no better proof of mr bierce's fundamental lack of this valuable asset could be asked than the retention in these ten volumes of a considerable amount of journalistic rubbish side by side with flashes of undoubted genius mr bierce's entire essay on the subject of criticism is a sort of literary agnosticism a gloomy denial of faith 
he has no confidence in the judgment of the general public nor in that of the professional critic he admits that in a few centuries more or less there may arrive a critic that we call posterity but posterity he complains is a trifle slow accordingly since the worth of any contemporary writer is reduced to mere guesswork he ambrose beers has scant use for his contemporaries he has very definite ideas regarding the training of young writers and tells us at some length the course through which he would like to put an imaginary pupil but he adds quote, if i caught him reading a newly published book save by way of penance it would go hard with him of our modern education he should have enough to read the ancients plato aristotle marcus aurelius seneca and that lot custodians of most of what is worth knowing in spite of the pains to which mr Bierce goes to deny that he is a laudator temporis acti the term fits him admirably and nowhere is this attitude of mind more conspicuous than in his treatment of the modern novel it is important however to get clearly in mind the arbitrary sense in which he uses the word novel as distinguished from what he chooses to call romance his occasional half-definitions are somewhat confusing but apparently by the novel he means realistic fiction as distinguished from romantic fiction a distinction complicated by the further idiosyncrasy that by realism he understands almost exclusively the commonplaces of actuality and by romanticism any happening which is out of the ordinary the novel then in his sense of the word is a snow plant it has no root in the permanent soil of literature and does not long hold its place it is one of the lowest form of imagination and again the novel bears the same relation to literature that the panorama bears to painting with whatever skill and feeling the panorama is painted it must lack that basic quality in all art unity totality of effect he seems utterly unaware that the great gain in modern fiction the one indisputable factor that separates it from the fiction of half a century ago is precisely the basic quality of unity the modern novel whose technique most nearly approaches perfection is the one which when read rapidly with a virgin attention at a single sitting to borrow mr bierce's own phrase gives an impression of as single-hearted a purpose as one finds in the most faultless of maupassant's three thousand word masterpieces it is quite possible for any well-trained reader to go through even the longest of novels at a single sitting the present writer would feel himself grievously at fault if he interrupted his first reading of any novel that had been given him for the purpose of review and he well remembers that in only two recent cases did he become conscious of the prolonged strain namely mr kipling's kim which required an uninterrupted attention of eight and one-half hours and the golden bowl of mr james which required somewhat more than eleven mr bierce's attitude however is partly explained by his obiter dictum that no man who has anything else to do can critically read more than two or three books in a month and of course if you are going to allow an average of ten days to a book the most perfect unity of purpose is inevitably going to drop out of sight all of this helps us to understand how it happens that mr bierce otherwise a man of intelligence can say in all seriousness that in england and america the art of novel-writing is as dead as queen anne listen also to the following literary blasphemy quote, so far as i am able to judge no good novels are now made in germany nor in france nor in any european country except russia the russians are writing novels which so far as one may venture to judge 
are in their way admirable full of fire and light like an opal in their hands the novel grew great as it did in those of richardson and fielding and as it would have done in those of thackeray and pater if greatness in that form of fiction had been longer possible in england or again quote, not only is the novel a faulty form of art but because of its faultiness it has no permanent place in literature in england it flourished less than a century and a half beginning with richardson and ending with thackeray since whose death no novels probably have been written that are worth attention think for a moment what this means here is a man who has ventured to speak seriously about the modern novel and who confessedly is unaware of the importance of trollope and meredith and hardy of henry james and rudyard kipling and maurice hewlett and who deliberately ignores the existence of flaubert and maupassant and zola galdos and valdez verga and d'annunzio it is not astonishing after that to find mr beer seriously questioning the value of epic poetry what more than they gave he asks might we not have had from virgil dante tasso camoynes and milton if they had not found the epic poem ready to their misguided hands the fact is that mr bierce as a critic is one of the iconoclastic variety he breaks down but does not build up he has no patience with the historical form of criticism that traces the intellectual genealogy of authorship showing for instance maupassant's debt to poe or bourget's debt to stendhal he is equally intolerant of that analytical method the fairest of them all that judges every written work by its author's purpose as nearly as this may be read between the lines nothing is more certain he says than if a writer of genius should bring to his task the purposes which the critics trace in the completed work the book would remain forever unwritten to the unspeakable advantage of letters and morals yes he tears down the recognized methods of criticism but suggests nothing better in their place and when he himself undertakes to criticize it is hardly ever for the purpose of paying tribute to excellence with the noteworthy exception mirabile dictu of his extraordinary praise of george sterling's poetic orgy of words the wine of wizardry tolstoy for instance he defines as a literary giant he has a giant's strength and has unfortunately learned to use it like a giant which means not necessarily with conscious cruelty but with stupidity the journal of marie baskirtseff the last book on earth that one would expect mr bierce to discuss he sums up as morbid hysterical and unpleasant beyond anything of its kind in literature among modern critics he pronounces mr howells the most mischievous because the ablest of all this sycophantic crew the truth is that the value of mr bierce as a critic lies solely in his fearlessness and downright sincerity his unswerving conviction that he is right he has to a rather greater extent than many a better critic the quality of consistency and no matter how widely we are forced to disagree with his conclusions there is not one of them that does not throw an interesting sidelight upon mr bierce the man the short stories and the serious critical papers of mr bierce have appeared in a spasmodic and desultory way but from the first to last he has been at heart a satirist of the school of lucilius and juvenal eager to scourge the follies and the foibles of mankind at large the fact that mr bierce is absolutely in earnest that he is destitute of fear and confessedly incorruptible accounts for the oft-repeated statement that he was for years the best loved and the most hated man on the pacific coast now the ability to use a stinging lash of words is all very well in itself 
it is a gift that is none too common but to be effective it must not be used too freely the two ample volumes of mr bierce's poetical invectives form a striking object lesson of the wisdom in hamlet's contention that unless you treat men better than they deserve none will escape a whipping and when fresh from a perusal of the contents of shapes of clay and black beetles and amber one has become so accustomed to seeing men flayed alive that a whole skin possesses something of a novelty now there is no question that there is a good deal wrong with the world just as there always has been if one takes the trouble to look for it but when any one man takes upon himself the task of reprimanding the universe it is not unreasonable that we should ask ourselves in the first instance what manner of man is this what are his standards and beliefs and if he had his way what new lamps would he give us in place of the old in the case of mr bierce it is a little difficult to make answer with full assurance somewhere in his preface he has said that he has not attempted to classify his writings under the separate heads of serious ironical humorous and the like assuming that his readers have sufficient intelligence to recognize the difference for themselves but this is not always easy to do because in satire these different qualities and moods overlap each other so that there is always the danger of taking too literally what is really an ironical exaggeration here however is a rather significant passage taken from a serious essay entitled to train a writer it sets forth the convictions and the general attitude toward life which mr bierce believes are essential to any young author before he can hope for success and it is only fair to infer that they represent his own personal views Quote, he should for example forget that he is an american and remember that he is a man he should be neither christian nor jew nor buddhist nor mahometan nor snake worshipper to local standards of right and wrong he should be civilly indifferent in the virtues so called he should discern only the rough notes of a general expediency in fixed moral principles only time-saving predecisions of cases not yet before the court of conscience happiness should disclose itself to his enlarging intelligence as the end and purpose of life art and love as the only means to happiness he should free himself of all doctrines theories etiquettes politics simplifying his life and mind attaining clarity with breadth and unity with height to him a continent should not seem wide nor a century long and it would be needful that he know and have an ever-present consciousness that this is a world of fools and rogues blind with superstition tormented with envy consumed with vanity selfish false cruel cursed with illusions frothing mad now this strikes the average fair-minded person as a rather wholesale indictment of what on the whole has proved to be a pretty good world to live in in fact it is difficult to conceive of any one honestly and literally holding so extreme a view and yet of his own volition remaining in such an unpleasant place any longer than the time required to obtain the amount of gunpowder or strychnine sufficient for an effective exit but of course mr bierce does not find life half so unpleasant as he professes in fact he gives the impression of hugely enjoying himself by voluntarily looking out upon a world grotesquely distorted by the lenses of his imagination he has of course a perfect right to have as much or as little faith as he chooses in any human religion or philosophy moral doctrine or political code only it is well when studying mr bierce as a satirist and reformer to understand clearly his limitations in this respect and to discount his view accordingly 
it is well for instance to keep in mind when reading some of his scathing lines directed at small offenders who at most have left the world not much worse off for having lived in it that mr bierce once eulogized that wholesale destroyer of faith robert ingersoll as a man who taught all the virtues as a duty and a delight who stood as no other man among his countrymen has stood for liberty for honour for good-will toward men for truth as it was given him to see it to the present writer there is much that is keenly irritating in mr bierce's satiric verse for the reasons above implied it is of course highly uncritical to find fault with a writer for no better reason than because you find yourself out of harmony with his religious and moral faith or his lack of it for an author's personal beliefs should have no bearing upon the artistic value of what he produces but putting aside personal prejudice it may be said in all fairness that mr bierce made a mistake in giving a permanent form to so large a body of his fugitive verses it is not quite true that satiric poetry is read with the same interest after the people at whom it was directed are forgotten aristophanes and horace and juvenal cannot be greatly enjoyed to-day without a good deal of patient delving for the explanation of local and temporal allusions and in modern times pope's dunciad for instance is probably to-day the least important and the least read of all his writings it is impossible to take much interest in vitriolic attacks made twenty years ago upon various obscure californians whose names mean nothing at all to the world at large but on the other hand any one can understand and enjoy the sweeping irony as well as the sheer verbal cleverness of a parody like the following quote, a rational anthem my country tis of thee sweet land of felony of thee i sing land where my father's fried young witches and applied whips to the quaker's hide and made him spring my knavish country thee land where the thief is free thy laws i love i love thy thieving bills that tap the people's tills i love thy mob whose wills all laws above let federal employees and rings rob all they please the whole year long let office-holders make their piles and judges rake our coin for jesus sake let's all go wrong one is tempted to devote considerably more space than is warranted to that extremely clever collection of satiric definitions the devil's dictionary it represents a deliberate pose consistently maintained it is pervaded with a spirit of what a large proportion of readers in a christian country would pronounce irreverent it tells us nothing new and can hardly be conceived of as an inspiration for higher and nobler living but it is undeniably entertaining reading almost any one must smile over such specimens as the following taken almost at random monday noun in christian countries the day after the baseball game bacchus noun a convenient deity invented by the ancients as an excuse for getting drunk positive adjective mistaken at the top of one's voice but it is a writer of short stories that mr bierce's future fame rests upon a firm foundation it is not too much to say that within his own chosen field the grim uncompromising horror story whether actual or supernatural he stands among american writers second only to edgar allan poe and this is all the more remarkable when we consider his expressed scorn of new books and modern methods and his implied indifference to the development of modern technique he does understand and consciously seeks for that unity of effect which is the foundation stone of every good short story 
yet in sheer technical skill there is scarcely one among the recognized masters of the short story to-day mr kipling for instance and the late o henry jack london and a score of his contemporaries from whom he might not learn something to his profit what mr bierce's habits of workmanship may be the present writer does not happen to know it is possible that he has always striven as hard to build an underlying structure a preliminary scaffolding for each story as ever edgar allan poe did but if so he has been singularly successful in practising the art which so artfully all things conceals he gives the impression of one telling a story with a certain easy spontaneity and attaining his results through sheer instinct he seldom attempts anything like a unity of time and place and many of his short tales have the same fault which he criticises in the modern novel namely that of having a panoramic quality of being shown to us in a succession of more or less widely separated scenes and incidents nevertheless in most cases his stories are their own best justification we may not agree with the method that he has chosen to use but we cannot escape from the strange haunting power of them the grim boding sense of their having happened even the most weird most supernatural most grotesquely impossible of them in precisely the way that he has told them the stories such of them at least as really count and represent mr bierce at his best divide themselves into two groups first the civil war stories based upon his own four years experience as a soldier during the rebellion and unsurpassed in american fiction for the unsparing clearness of their visualization of war and secondly the frankly supernatural stories contained in the volume entitled can such things be stories in which the setting is immaterial because if such things could be they would be independent of time and space the war stories range through the entire gamut of heroism suffering and carnage they are stamped in all their physical details with a pitiless realism unequalled by stendhal in the famous waterloo episode in the chartreuse de parme and at least unsurpassed by tolstoy or by zola indeed there is nothing fulsome or extravagant in the statement that has more than once been made that mr bierce is a sort of american maupassant and what is most remarkable about these stories is that they never fail of a certain crescendo effect keyed as they are to a high pitch of human tragedy there is always one last turn of the screw one crowning horror held in reserve until the crucial moment take for example a horseman in the sky a sentinel whose duty it is to watch from a point of vantage overlooking a deep gorge and a vast plain beyond to see that no scout of the southern army shall discover a trail down the precipitous sides of the opposite slope suddenly perceives the solitary horseman making his way along the verge of the precipice within easy range of fire the sentinel watches and hesitates takes aim and delays his fire the scene shifts with the disconcerting suddenness of a modern moving picture and we see the sentinel back in his southern home at the outbreak of the war and we overhear the controlled bitterness of his parting with his southern father after declaring his intention to fight for the union a modern story-teller would consider this shifting of scene bad art nevertheless mr bierce in theatrical parlance gets it over back again he shifts us with a rush to the lonely horseman shows him for a moment motionless upon the brink and the next instant launched into space a wonderful miraculous awe-inspiring figure proudly erect upon a stricken and dying horse whose legs spasmodically continue their mad gallop throughout the downward flight to the inevitable annihilation below this in itself 
told with ambrose bierce's compelling art is sufficiently harrowing but he has something more in reserve listen to this did you fire the sergeant whispered yes at what a horse it was standing on yonder rock pretty far out you see it is no longer there it went over the cliff the man's face was white but he showed no other signs of emotion having answered he turned away his eyes and said no more the sergeant did not understand see here druce he said after a moment's silence it's no use making a mystery i order you to report was there anybody on the horse yes well my father and again there is that extraordinary tour de force entitled an occurrence at owl creek bridge it is the story of a spy caught and about to be hanged by the simple expedient of allowing the board on which he stands to tilt up and drop him between the cross-beams of the bridge the story is of considerable length it details with singular and compelling vividness what follows from the instant that the spy feels himself dropped feels the rope tighten around his neck and its fibres strain and snap under his weight his plunge into the stream below his dash for life under cover of the water his flight torn and bleeding through thorns and brambles his miraculous dodging of outposts and his passing unscathed through volleys of rapid fire all read like a hideous nightmare and so in fact they are because the entire story of his rush for safety lasting long hours and days in reality is accomplished in a mere fraction of time the instant of final dissolution because as it happened the rope did not break and at the moment that he thought he had attained safety his body ceased to struggle and dangled limply beneath the owl creek bridge variations upon this theme of the rapidity of human thought in the moment of death are numerous there is for instance a memorable story by morgan robertson called if memory is not at fault from the main top in which a lifetime is crowded into the fraction of time required for the action of gravity but no one has ever used it more effectually than mr bierce but it is in his supernatural stories that mr bierce shows even more forcefully his wizardry of word and phrase his almost magnetic power to make the absurd the grotesque the impossible carry an overwhelming conviction he will tell you for instance a story of a man watching at night alone by the dead body of an old woman a cat makes its way into the room and springs upon the corpse and to the man's overwrought imagination it seems as though that dead woman seized the cat by the neck and flung it violently from her of course you imagined it says the friend to whom he afterwards tells the tale i thought so too rejoins the man but the next morning her stiffened fingers still held a handful of black fur for sheer mad humour there is nothing more original than the tale called a jug of syrup a certain old and respected village grocer who through a lengthy life has never missed a day at his desk dies and his shop is closed one night the village banker and a leading citizen on his way home drops in from force of habit at the grocery finding the door wide open and buys a jug of syrup absent-mindedly forgetting that the grocer who serves him has been dead three weeks the jug is a heavy weight to carry yet when he reaches home he has nothing in his hand the tale spreads like wildfire through the village and the next night a vast throng is assembled in front of the brightly lit-up grocery breathlessly watching the shadowy form of the deceased methodically casting up accounts one by one they pluck up courage and make their way into the grocery all but the banker 
riveted to the spot by the grotesque horror of the sight he stands and watches while pandemonium breaks loose to him in the road the shop is still brilliantly lighted but to those who have gone within it presents the darkness of eternal night and in their unreasoning fear they kick and scratch and bite and trample upon one another with the primordial savageness of the mob and all the while the shadowy figure of the dead grocer continues undisturbed to balance his accounts it is a temptation to linger beyond all reason over one after another of these extraordinary and haunting imaginings such for instance as moxon's master in which an inventor having made a mechanical chess-player makes the mistake of beating it at the game and is promptly strangled to death by the revengeful puppet of his own creation but it is impossible to do justice to all these stories separately and it remains only to single out one typical example in which perhaps he reached the very pinnacle of his strange fantastic genius the death of halpin fraser the theme of the story is this it is sufficiently horrible to be confronted with a disembodied spirit but there is one degree of horror beyond this namely to have to face the reanimated body of some one long dead from whom the soul has departed because so mr beers tells us with the departure of the soul all natural affection all kindliness has departed also leaving only the base instincts of brutality and revenge now in the case of halpin fraser it happens that the body which he is fated to encounter under these hideously unnatural conditions is that of his own mother and in a setting as curiously and poetically unreal as any part of kubla khan he is forced to realize that his mother whom he had in life worshipped as she worshipped him is now in spite of her undiminished beauty a foul and bestial thing intent only upon taking his life in all imaginative literature it would be difficult to find a parallel for this story in sheer unadulterated hideousness mr ambrose bierce as a story-teller can never achieve a wide popularity at least among the anglo-saxon race his writings have too much the flavour of the hospital and the morgue there is a stale odour of mouldy cerements about them but to the connoisseur of what is rare unique and very perfect in any branch of fiction he must appeal strongly as one entitled to hearty recognition as an enduring figure in american letters no matter how strongly he may offend individual convictions and prejudices with the flippant irreverence of his satiric writings it is easy to forgive him all this and much more besides for the sake of any single one of a score or more of his best stories end of chapter fourteen end of some american story-tellers by frederick tabor cooper Recorded by Céline Major.